Uh, we're excited to be together this morning and, and welcome again uh, to One Tribe. Uh, my name is Sean and I'm one of the elders here at the church uh, alongside Cephas and, and Simba, husband to Matthew, who's, who's not with us today because he's, he's out caring for his parents uh, who've been going through some health challenges. And so we commend him for honoring his mom and his dad today and, and serving them. Uh, we're in a series uh, going through the book of Acts. We've been going chapter by chapter through this amazing story of, of the early church. And the section that we're in right now is, is really Paul's second missionary journey. And we've entitled it History Maker. Can you guys hear me okay? Great, good. It's getting some confused looks. So it's called History Maker. And, and why it's called History Maker is because we've, we've been reading about how Paul and Silas land up in, in Europe. And from the humblest of beginnings, um, they start a movement there that changes the course of history uh, for that continent. Last week, we saw them arrive in the city of Philippi. And if you look at this map, Philippi today actually is on the Mediterranean coast in Greece. Um, it's now called Philippoi, so it's pretty close. Uh, and we, what we now know is that over the next couple of hundred years, uh, the, the message that Paul and Silas brought to this continent uh, would change the continent in profound ways. It would have impact on its culture, uh, on its laws, on the rights of its citizens, and not only on, on that continent, but eventually we would see that impact spill out of Europe uh, into the rest of the world, including into the continent that we find ourselves in today. And the way that we see this movement starting is through lives being changed one by one. And last week we saw how Lydia, uh, she had her heart opened to the power of the gospel and her life was changed. And not only that, we saw how the power of their message had power to defeat opposition. And, and Paul commanded an evil spirit to come out of the slave girl, and she was set free. And today we, we see, though, that the slave girl's deliverance lands Paul and Silas into some serious trouble. You see, the, the, uh, the owners of the slave girl were actually making really good money out of her because she had this ability to tell people's fortunes. Seemingly, this was demonically empowered. And so when the evil spirit gets cast out, they realize, oh, we've lost our cash cow. So they take Paul and Silas, they're furious. They bring them before the magistrates. And they say, hey, these guys are doing stuff and spreading a message that's just improper for us as good standing Roman citizens to practice, because this was a, a Roman colony. And what happens is the, the crowd gets behind these owners, the magistrates get influenced by this frenzy, and they, they command that they are stripped of their clothes and beaten with rods and thrown into prison. So today, we find our history makers in the worst kind of trouble. They're beaten, they're bruised, and they're in prison. I wonder how many of us have spent time in prison. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. <laughs> Um, at this point. I, I haven't, but uh, a couple of years ago, I was involved with, uh, on the board of a, of a community-owned conservancy in the Masai Mara, and there were some, some landowner factions, disagreements that came out, and it ended up with this really messy, politically-driven uh, court case. And at one stage in that court case, my name appeared on this lawsuit, along with about 20 others, asking the judge in Narok to put us into prison for six months. Now, let me be clear. Don't nod, Jonathan. <laughs> at, uh, I, I want to be clear that I, I, was, I was confident I had done nothing wrong. I was confident that this wouldn't actually happen. 
But it's pretty weird how when you see your name on a document like that, it actually starts to get inside your head. You know, you start to wonder, wow, I wonder if, I mean, imagine I get a sham trial. It gets corrupted. And I actually end up in prison in the Rock GK prison. You know, what would that be like for me? And I wonder about my family. Would I see them? Uh, uh, how often would I see them? How would they cope? How would I cope? <laughs> you know, like, would, it, would I make it through? Would I be able to st- stay positive and upbeat? Or would I be broken mentally and emotionally? I even wondered about my faith. Like, would I be able, really, to keep my trust in God during that time? Well, let's see what happens to our two history makers as they end up in prison. And I'm going to tell you uh, the story, uh, like a story from the Bible, but the verses are going to be up on the screen, so you can follow it there. Just make sure I'm not making this stuff up. And please, if I get stuck along the way, just shout out to me what happens next. That would be very helpful. Okay. So after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them into the inner cell and he fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and and all the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, such an earthquake came that it shook the foundations of the prison. And at once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains fell off. The jailer woke up, and seeing that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword to kill himself because he thought all the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. So the jailer called for lights, and and he rushed in, and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out, and he asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Come on, guys. Thank you. I knew where I was going. I was just testing you. Then he took them, and they spoke the word of the Lord to them and all his household. And at that hour of the night, he took them, and he washed their wounds. Then immediately, he was baptized, him and all of his household. The jailer took them into his house, and he set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had become to believe in God, him and his whole household. At daybreak... The magistrate sent officers with a command for the jailer, saying, release those men. The jailer said to Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now now you can go. Leave in peace. But Paul said to the officers, "They, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. Then they threw us into prison. Now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, 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 let them come themselves and escort us out. When the officers uh, took this message back to the magistrates and they heard that they were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. So, so they came to appease 
them, and they escorted Paul and Silas out of prison, requesting them to please uh, leave the city. (laughs) When Paul and Silas had come out of the jail, they went to Lydia's house to meet with the brothers and sisters, and they encouraged them, and then they left. Let's pray together. Yeah, God, we thank you for the story from your word. We thank you that your word isn't just a novel. It isn't just an action movie. God, we thank you that this is real life. It it happened in history, and it's real life to us. Thank you that you say your word is alive and active. It's able to get a hold of our hearts and change us. So we just want to ask this morning that by the power of your spirit, you would come and speak to us through your word. We're hungry to hear and listen. We don't want to leave here changed. Holy Spirit, lead us into truth as we open up your word this morning. And I pray just like we see lives are changed in this story, that you would change ours and you would change the course of history of our city and our nation, even as you work through us as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So this is a fascinating story. We see these weird and wonderful events, kind of unexpected things happening one after another as Paul and Silas land up in Europe and then land up in jail. And we're just going to go through this passage verse by verse. But as we do that, we're going to kind of put three headings over the top of those verses. And those three headings are a surprising joy that we see in jail, an unlikely salvation that happens in jail, and then an ultimate history maker who's at work, even in and through the jail. So first of all, we see a surprising joy. Our passage opens with Paul and Silas in prison, having been arrested and without a fair trial. They were stripped of their clothes. They were beaten. Uh, They're probably bleeding. They, They may well have broken bones, maybe some cracked ribs. And they've been thrown into prison, but not just into prison. They're in the inner cell, the darkest part of the prison, away from the light and the air. And we read that that their feet have been fastened in stocks. And these aren't just like security mechanisms. These are actually torture apparatus. So apparently these stocks would splay your legs apart into these unnatural positions so that slowly they would start to cramp and you'd be in excruciating pain. They were in about a bad situation as you could imagine, a horrible set of circumstances. And yet, surprisingly, we read in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And and in the original language, that, that verb listening actually talks about being fixated on something, like the rest of the prisoners were totally captivated by their behavior. And I can imagine they were saying things like, what is what is up with these guys? Like, don't, weren't they just beaten and stripped and, and, and aren't they being tortured and, and don't they know where they are? How is it possible that they are acting like this? And friends, I just don't know, honestly, if I could act like this if I had ended up in Narok GK prison. You know, I'm a pretty optimistic, I'm a pretty upbeat, positive person, but to be honest, I don't take negative circumstances doing well. I don't, I don't like suffering. Just ask Tesney when I've got Homer at home. It's not a happy place for me. And I know the story that I'm about to tell you is a bit of a pathetic metaphor for the situation that Paul and Silas were in. And also, it's, it doesn't reflect me in a particularly positive light. But I'm going to tell you uh, the story anyway. So 
A couple of weeks ago, I injured my, my thumb, and I went to the, thank you, I, I went to the doctor, <laughs> and the doctor sent me for an MRI, okay, and I hadn't done an MRI for a while, and I guess I thought, I don't know what I was expecting, but I thought I'll just stick my hand in this thing, I'm going to take a quick picture, and I'll, I'll go home. So I, I land up there, and I go into this room, and of course, the MRIs, there's a picture there of these long tubes that they've got, right? And they, they lie me down on that, that bed, and then they, they strap my arm in this weird position above my head like this, and they're like, they clamp it down. Okay, so then, then they casually mention, hey, you can't move while we're doing this, and by the way, it's going to be about 20 minutes. So that's when I started to get a little bit worried. Um, but I thought, you know what, I'll just have a nap in there. I'll, I'll fall asleep. It'll be fine. So they start to roll me in. But as they roll me in, I realize that my face is down on this pillow and I can't breathe. So I start like thrashing around in this tube like this. And this makes this technician angry. Eh? He runs in there. He's like, what are you doing? I told you to keep still. So they roll me back out. I said, listen, I couldn't breathe. So, so now we try to rearrange the position. Now I put my, my head on my hand like this. So I've got a little pocket of air that I can breathe in. So I'm still strapped up like this. And they start to roll me back in the machine. And after about 10 seconds of being in there, I realize there's no blood going to this arm <laughs> anymore. So it starts to tingle. But there's no way I'm calling that guy again because I'm pretty scared of him now, right? So I start to, to lose all feeling in this arm. And, and not only is it the, the pain in my arms, because this one's also going numb, but it's the sound. It's like I'm, I'm lying in an airplane machine, this drubbing that's happening. So it was, it was excruciating, and I definitely wasn't singing, but to my credit, to my credit, I did pray. I did pray. I prayed that my arms wouldn't fall off, <laughs> and they wouldn't go blue. Anyway, the guy eventually, after 20 of the longest minutes of my life, they, they rolled me out. And to be honest, I felt like this guy was having fun with me. It was like he was smiling, and he actually even said to me, it's like torture, hey? <laughs> so I was like, wow. But this guy, his, his fun wasn't over. Because now, he just stood there and he watched me trying to put my clothes back on with two dead arms. Okay, so you imagine, try to try, tie your shoelaces with an injured thumb and two dead arms. It's like they just like flop around like this while you tie to, try to tie your shoelaces up. It was terrible. But enough about that. Uh, enough to say that, that I wasn't this shining example of rejoicing in suffering. And I know that that's a pretty insignificant event compared to some of the trials that we have to walk through as human beings, some of the stuff that some of you might be carrying today in your lives. And it definitely doesn't compare to the situation that Paul and Silas were in. Bible commentator John Stott writes this. He says, It is wonderful that in such pain, with lacerated backs and aching limbs, Paul and Silas at about midnight were praying and singing hymns to God. Not groans, but songs came from their mouths. Instead of cursing men, they were blessing God. No wonder the other prisoners were listening to them. So how do they do this? How do they pull this off? Well, I think from our passage, we can pick up maybe two secrets to Paul and Silas's surprising joy. They should have been overwhelmed with despair. They should have been filled with fear and anxiety. And instead, we see them demonstrating a surprising joy and peace. And the first secret that I want to suggest that they had was that their treasure was untouchable. What do I mean? Well, if your, if your greatest love and treasure in life 
is anything other than God and His love, then suffering can really hurt you. It can take away from you the things that matter to you most. If you think that being wealthy or, or healthy or successful in business or, or romance is what you need to be okay, then you can lose it. It can be robbed from you. You can lose your money. You can lose your, your health. You can fail in your career. You can even end up in jail and it will destroy you. And so you live a life of fear and anxiety of those things ever happening to you. But when you've come to the place that your greatest love and treasure and prize in life is God and is love, then no matter what's going on in your circumstances, you'll find you have this robust joy, this freedom from fear, because no matter how bad things get, what's really important to you can't be snatched away. As we've heard, these events were taking place in, in Philippi, and about 11 years after this missionary journey, Paul would write a letter back to the believers in this city. And this letter is, is, is full of instruction about how to live a life of joy. In Philippians 4, listen to what he writes. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And later in the chapter, he said, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every and each situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul is saying there is an unshakable joy we can have as Christ followers. He's not saying every day is going to be a good day. And he's not saying every day we're just going to be overflowing with happiness. See, happiness is, is different to joy. Happiness is, is an emotional response to, to how things are going, to our circumstances. Biblical joy is the state of the soul that is rested on what we believe about God, who He is, what He's promised, and what He's done for us. Somebody once said, happiness is smiling when the sun is out, joy is dancing in the downpour. And Paul said, in spite of life's ups and downs, if God is our treasure, we can pray, even sing in the middle of life's storms. And we can experience God's peace and His contentment. And when, when the believers in Philippi were reading this letter, no doubt they had in their mind what they saw Paul and Silas doing, singing and praying in jail. They had this living, breathing example of what he was writing to them about. The second reason why I think they could have this surprising joy is that their mission was unstoppable. You see, Paul and Silas, they weren't so concerned about their own life stories. They weren't so concerned about how things were going for them. You know, were they on track with their, their five-year plan? No, they had become totally obsessed with, with his story, with God's story, with the mission of the gospel's advance. They were surrendered completely to whatever part God would have them play in that. And they knew that no matter what was happening to them in prison, Nothing was going to stop the story that they had given themselves to. 
It wasn't under threat. In the first chapter of, of the book of Philippians, as he writes back to these believers, Paul's in jail again. He's now in Rome in chains, and he reminds the people in Philippi, hey, these chains are actually serving to advance the gospel. They're not putting the gospel in chains. And he reminds them that as Christians, we're not actually called to a life of health, wealth, and comfort, but yeah, we're called to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer with Jesus. And he says that somehow in our suffering, God does some of his best work in us and through us to advance his gospel. So because their mission was unstoppable, their treasure was untouchable, they could have joy. Friends, do we even understand, as Christ follows, this freedom, this radical joy that we have available to us through life's ups and downs? How do we practically take hold of it? How do we live in it? Well, I, I want to suggest that one easy step we can take is simply, as best as we can, to ask God for it. Earlier this week, um, Tez, around our dinner table, was sharing with us as a family, and she said, guys, last night I, I just couldn't sleep. I was, I was overwhelmed with anxiety and fears. I had all these things going through my mind. And I woke up and, and I went for a run, and on my run I thought, let me just try and pray. And, and she said, she just simply said to God, God, I don't know what to do with this, but can you please take my anxieties and replace them with your joy? A joy in who you are and a joy in what you're doing in my life. And she, she said that actually when she came back, she felt a bit lighter. You know, God is so faithful when we ask Him for help to show up. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm 94, when I said my foot is slipping, your unfailing love, Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. God is a God who's willing to exchange His joy for our fears and anxiety if we would only ask Him. The second thing that we see in this passage is not only was there a surprising joy, but there was an unlikely salvation of the jailer. You know, Paul and Silas were in jail, but they knew that even though they were locked up physically, ultimately, truly, they were really free. You know, later in the, chapter, later in the story, we see twice they had the opportunity to, to escape, first with the earthquake, then with the magistrates, and twice they weren't in a rush to rush for the door. Why? Because they knew they actually didn't need to be set free. And ironically, it was the jailer who had the keys and the sword. He was the one who was in need of freedom. He was the one who was trapped. And so we read in verse 26, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And at this point we expect the rest of the story to be about Paul and Silas's great escape. But actually this isn't the first time in the book of Acts that we see prison breaks that have nothing to do with the freedom of the guys who are in prison. In Acts chapter uh, uh, 5, we see Peter is delivered from Herod's hand by an angel escorting him out. In Acts chapter 12, though, we saw that, that the apostles were released from prison. But interestingly, they went back at daybreak to do exactly the same thing that they were doing that got them arrested, which was teaching in the temple courts, filling Jerusalem with their teaching. You see, it seems that the point of the prison break for them wasn't so much about their freedom from jail. It was about strengthening their base for witness. 
And it's the same thing here in Acts 16. What's actually going on here is not the freedom of Paul and Silas from the, from the jail. It's the deliverance uh, of the jailer. So maybe the, the earthquake woke up the jailer from his sleep. Or maybe his guards woke him up because the doors had flung open and the prisoner's chains were loose. And when he sees what happens, he, he gets ready to kill himself because he would rather die than face the dishonor and the punishment of losing his prisoners. Actually, in, in Acts uh, uh, 12, when Peter escapes from jail, Herod orders the guards to be executed. But Paul and Silas, instead of paying him back for his cruelty, they show him kindness. You know, this guy went above and beyond what he was commanded. Yeah, he was told to guard them carefully, but he decided to turn the screws. He decided, let me put them in the inner cell, in the darkest place. Let me get the stocks out and do some torturing here. Do you know, when this earthquake happens, you think, wow, this is their chance to escape. This is their chance. They've been vindicated by God himself, and probably the jailer is being judged for what he's done. But instead, we see that God had orchestrated these events. He had roused a mob. There had been a sham trial. Paul and Silas had suffered. They had sang and they had prayed. He sent an earthquake, all to pursue the jailer that he had elected for salvation. Guys, God will go to great lengths to pursue the people that he has chosen to become his children. And as we invest and invite in the neighborhoods and the nations, as we pray for our friends and our neighbors and our family members who don't know God, I hope that this will give us faith. Even the most unlikely people can come to know God because he will go to any length to reach them, to wake them up from where they are sitting. So the jailer sees this kindness. He realizes that not only have they not run out themselves, but they've actually used their influence to stop the rest of the prisoners going out. Try doing that in committee prison. And he comes to them and he falls trembling at their feet and he, and he asks a question that, that all of us have to ask in, in some version in, at some stage in our life. He says, what must I do to be saved? And you know, this was an action man. He was probably a retired soldier. So I guess it's not surprising that the emphasis of his question is, what must I do? How can I earn this? How can I get a hold of this thing? And maybe he, he would have been pretty surprised by their answer because they replied and they said, simply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now he comes and says, what must I do to be saved? And they say, no, 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 no. It's not about what you must do. It's about looking at what he has done and you will be saved. Charles Spurgeon, he was a, a preacher in the 1800s in England. Um, and when he was a young man, he became really unhappy in life. And he started to, he started to search for answers. He started to attend some church services and things like that. Um, and one day, he was on his way on a Sunday to an appointment, and there was a huge snowstorm. And so he actually had to divert his plans, and he went into a courtyard, and he ended up coming into a small Methodist church where there were just about a dozen people attending. And even the pastor that day couldn't make it to the service, so there was no one to speak and to do the sermon. Listen to what, how he tells his story. He says, a poor man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. 
He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. His text was from Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce it rightly, but that did not matter. There was a, a thought to me that there was a glimpse of hope for me in that passage. And then he began to speak, and he said, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just, look. Well, a man does not need to go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and you can look. A man not be worth a thousand pounds a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. And then it says, look unto me. Aye, he said in broad Essex. Is that good, Jonathan? No, not very good. Aye, he said in broad Essex. Sounds like a pirate. Many of ye have been looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. The good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. And when he got about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes, he was at the end of his tether. So he looked around the room and he, and he looked at me at the back under the gallery. And with so very few present, I think he knew me to be a stranger. And then he said, Young man, you look very miserable. <laughs> well, I did. But I wasn't used to being, having remarks like that made on my personal appearance from the pulpit. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could, Young man, look to Jesus Christ! There and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. And in that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them about the precious blood of Christ. Michael Eaton says about our jailer's salvation, salvation is by simple faith, so it can happen very speedily. It can come to you simply and suddenly. You can be transferred from death to life in a moment. And if it was your, your godliness and your discipline, it, it might take years for you to be saved. But because it depends on what Jesus has done, it doesn't. It can happen in a moment if you put your trust in Him. And I want to ask you this morning, have you, have you done that? Have you looked at Jesus? Have you looked at what He's done? Have you believed in Him? And if you haven't, I just want to give you an opportunity right now to do it. Now, I'm just going to pray a, a simple prayer, and wherever you are, 
I just want to ask, we, we'll just close our eyes, and you just pray in your heart along with me, and then we'll carry on. Lord, I thank you this morning that I, I can see that all I have to do is look at you. And today I choose to believe in you, Jesus, and what you did on the cross. Thank you, God, that in this moment you have transferred me from, life, from death to life, from darkness to light. Thank you, God, that by simply looking at you and putting my trust in you, I can believe and trust that I've got new life and eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to encourage you, if, if you've responded in your heart to God today in that way, please come chat to us afterwards. We'd love to chat to you about the next steps in this new life uh, in God. Now, it's probably good just to clarify one thing from this text. When, when Paul and Silas say, believe in the Lord and you will be saved, you and your, your household, they're not saying that there's kind of this salvation by proxy. You know, the, the rest of his household also had to hear the good news of what Jesus had done and believe for themselves. And, and apparently, they do get to hear. He, it says they taught the word of the Lord to him and his whole household. And then we get this amazing picture this beautiful account of how the jailer's life, after responding in simple faith to this message of Paul and Silas, we see how his life has changed. We start to see actually fruit coming out instantly of his new life in Christ. And it's a beautiful picture of how, yes, salvation is by simple faith, but it doesn't leave us as we are. It starts to change us from the inside out. We see, first of all, that he had tortured them, but now he goes and washes their wounds. We see that he and his family get baptized immediately. That's a, a natural response to coming to know God. And, and that's why we're doing baptisms next week here. And so for you, if, if you're a new believer in Jesus and you haven't yet said, I want to be baptized, I want to encourage you, it's not too late for you to sign up for that. He opens up the, his home. He shows them hospitality. He cooks them a meal. He enjoys fellowship with them. It says that he is filled with joy because he's come to believe in God. That's a sign of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. You see, the gospel can save you quickly when you put your trust in Jesus. But as we learned last week, the gospel has the power to totally change your life. And if you've really understood it, it won't leave you the same. I love how our Andrew Wilson talks about this. Uh, he talks about how when you encounter God, it, it's like an earthquake. It's actually, he calls it a self-quake. He says that a made-up God, a false God, will leave your world undisturbed. You just will, he'll kind of conveniently align with your priorities, and he won't displace anything in your life. But he says the real God will land in your life like an elephant crashing through the ceiling displacing your sin, realigning your priorities, and forcing you to reorientate yourself around who He is. Our jailer wasn't looking for God. God came looking for him. He was woken to his senses by a physical earthquake, but then he experienced the self-quake, which changed everything for him and his family. And as our, our story ends, uh, there's one last interesting twist that reminds us that there's an ultimate history maker 
who's at work in and through the prison story. God Himself is orchestrating the series of remarkable events. He's been sovereignly at work through the persecution that lands Paul and Silas in jail, through sending an earthquake and saving the jailer and his family. And then in verse 35, we see that God is directing the hearts of the magistrates, and they send word with the officers to say, release those men. And the jailer is so excited. He goes to Paul and Silas, and, and he says to them, hey, the magistrates have said, you, you Paul and you Silas, you can be released. Thank you so much for not leaving before when I was about to kill myself, but now you can go. Go in peace. But even then, Paul and Silas still won't go. They push back on the officials. They said, hey, we are Roman citizens. They need to come and escort us out. What is, what is going on here? Why would they do that? Well, many of the commentators believe that this was just a brilliant example of servant leadership. You see, Paul and Silas probably didn't flag their Roman citizenship when they were dragged before the magistrates because many of the other believers in Philippi wouldn't have been Roman citizens. And so they didn't want to kind of use their privilege to escape the persecution that others in the church were going to face. But now, when they're given the opportunity to go free, they bring it up because they want to make the authorities think twice before they throw any other Christians into jail. See, Paul and, and Silas were living out what, they, what Paul wrote in Philippians 2 verse 3 when he said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, Paul is a history maker because his focus is not on his own interests. It's on the interests of others. It's on what God is doing in His story, building His church, transforming lives. God is, is rewriting this history in Philippi, and He's doing it one life at a time. Think about who's in the room when, uh, in Lydia's house and Paul, as Paul and Silas go to say their goodbyes. Lydia, a wealthy Asian woman who had her heart opened to the gospel. Maybe the Greek slave girl who was oppressed and in need of deliverance. This middle-class Roman jailer who needed an earthquake to wake him up spiritually. All now gathering in Lydia's house to worship the same God as brothers and sisters. There's this um, liturgical prayer that Jewish heads of households used to pray daily. And, and, and it says, thank you, God, for not making me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And I think it's Tim Keller who says that, isn't it amazing in Philippi that God uses these three despised groups of people to build His church? Lydia, the woman, the slave girl, and the Gentile jailer. And you see, that's, that's because just like Paul writes to the church in Galatia, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. When it comes to the gospel, there's not a certain type that it helps. The gospel is for everyone and anybody. It's for, it's for anybody because everybody needs it and because it's true. 
What a story God is writing in Philippi. What a story he is still writing on planet Earth. What a story he's writing here in Nairobi. What a story he's writing amongst us as one tribe. This gospel is still for any, anyone and everyone. It's still for every tribe. And guess what? He offers us an invitation to be a part of it, to join in with what he's doing on planet Earth. And, and I want to encourage you that what if we could give our lives to this, to the big story of God, like we see Paul and Silas doing in this story? Well, I believe that we would get to experience the surprising joy in spite of our circumstances. Maybe we would get to see unlikely salvations around us, the people that we know and do life with in the city. And in spite of our weakness, I believe God could use us to rewrite the history of the city and our nation for His glory. Let's pray together. God, we just thank You so much, Lord, for what You're doing on planet Earth. Thank You, God, that what we read about today, You're the same God, and You're writing the same story. Thank You that this is our story as Your people. Lord, I, I want to ask this morning, just as we sang about and prayed about earlier, I, I just want to ask that whatever storm people are facing in their lives today, I want to ask, Lord, that they would have the courage to come to You and ask for You to exchange their fears and their worries for Your joy. Father, I, I pray, Lord, that we would have eyes to see the wonders of the story You're writing in our lives and in the city. And I pray that You'd have You'd give us the courage and the faith to give our lives to it. In Jesus' name, amen.